Welcome to the Big Break Software Podcast. We'll be talking with software startup founders, software coaches, and consultants, and how they found their own software success. And now, let's get started with the show. Hi, everyone. This is Jordy Wardman here, host of the Big Break Software Podcast, where I talk to top leaders in the software field like Seth Godin, Andrew Warner of Mixergy, and many more. This is a show where we talk to proven founders about their 0 to 30,000 MRR journey and beyond. Today's episode is brought to you by OneStop.fm. We have 45 developers waiting to take your idea to fruition. If you want a reliable full-stack development team with top talent that costs half as much as in-house developers, and you know you can trust your SaaS or mobile app with us, we'll give you the first 30 days no risk, and we guarantee being on time and on budget, or we finish the project at no extra cost. Contact us at OneStop.fm. Let's talk about your SaaS MVP project today. Today we have Greg Lim, co-founder and CEO of Persosa, data and experience platform enabling businesses to better understand their consumers, target new audiences, and increase revenue with connect connected campaigns. We'll be talking about how Greg came up with the idea, funded the MVP, found his first few customers, and navigated his way to product market fit two times to 30,000 MRR and beyond. How are you today, Greg? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So why don't you give me a quick intro into your product and how you specifically solve your customer's problem? Yeah, so uh, at Pesosa, we help customers better understand their customers and then use that understanding to drive increases in revenue. So what does that really mean? We have kind of two core products right now. One allows our customers to track all of their visitors across multiple channels and then own that data in a first-party context, which is something that's obviously very critical in today's changing landscape uh, with you know, Google and Apple changing the rules around third-party cookies and user tracking. And then the second product that we have is around now that you understand your customers, how do you actually turn that understanding into revenue? And we have a personalization platform that allows you to use that data to deliver personalized experiences for everyone who visits your website and or mobile app. So pretty simple concept. George, you and I are different people. When we go to a website, we both get the exact same experience. It doesn't really make much sense, right? With all of the data and things that we know about people today, when we go to a brand's website, you and I should get different experiences that are personalized to us relative to the products and services that we're interested in. Okay. Can you describe to me why you have two products? How did that come about? Yeah, <laughs> great question. It was initially one product and one platform. Um, and candidly, behind the scenes, it's, it's really the same product to us. But what we've found is in the marketplace, we're solving two different problems. One are people who want to own their customer data in a first-party context, which is a really hot topic right now. And then for those people, we said, by the way, we can help you own your customer data in a first-party context, but now we also have a secondary product that can help you unlock value against that data. And those are people who are really focused on data ownership, changes in data privacy. And then the other side of the equation is people who, generally marketers, who want to increase their media performance. We say, hey, yo, we've got this great personalization platform that will increase your media performance 50 to 100%. And by the way, we also have a secondary product that will help you track your users. So to us, it was originally one platform. But candidly, what happened is we sounded like we were going a little bit crazy. We'd go into a customer meeting. And as most entrepreneurs, all we wanted to do was tell everyone how beautiful our baby was. So 
we do personalization, we do data, we do data, we do personalization. And we were honestly, our messaging wasn't that tight. And so we realized that we had to separate them at least you know, external facing into two separate products so that we had a very logical talk track and we didn't sound like we were schizophrenic in every single, uh, every single sales call. Okay. So, so literally when I come to your, when I come to Persosa, there'll be products and there'll be two products and customers kind of choose which one they want or how does that work? Great question. What we do is instead of starting with our products, although we do have obviously a tab around our products, we mm -hmm. actually start with industries. So depending on who you are, your role, whether you're a brand or a publisher or a media company. So instead of saying, hey, what are our products and force them to think about it, we try and put ourselves in their shoes. Who do they self-identify as? And mm -hmm. then use that to guide them into the appropriate products and services and talk around how we solve their problem or issue rather than starting with our product uh, first. Okay. So tell me about the who your client avatar is. Who are you selling to? I gather it's to marketers mostly. or And when I say that, I'm not just saying like, I'm sell we sell to the C you know this the CMO you know across a bunch of different verticals like what is your client avatar? Yeah, so it's kind of a crossover of kind of role and responsibility as well as industry. So right now we're selling primarily to uh, performance marketers, um, right? Those are people who are converting online. They're generally very data driven. They're willing to try and test new things and usually have a budget for it. So that's really kind of the center of the bullseye for us. Um, and that's on the personalization side. And then we have a second uh, group that we're going after for kind of partnerships and distributions, which are large media companies and publishers. So yeah, Hulu, NBC, Hearst, Meredith Publishing, large publishers like that. And then the roles on that side are very much around marketing innovation, as well as you know, strategic, uh, you know, uh, strategic initiatives and innovation. Okay, so you are are you getting that sort of level client, like you're getting we, Hulu and NBC and these these bigger um, corporations? Yeah, th those were some examples. So I don't, I won't say specific brands, but yes, we we're really fortunate. We we are right now. We have more than a handful of pilots right now that we're in discussions around with some you know, pretty well-known publishers and, and media companies whose, whose names you, you know, most of us would probably recognize. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it sounds like is that – now, is that for both products? They, you know, that um, these publishers could essentially come in and use both products. Is that correct? Yes. You know, out of the gate, they'll probably just use one. Uh, but yes, the what truly makes us different is there are some point solutions around everything we do. But we believe that there's no one else in the industry that's uniquely combined both data ownership, audience building, personalization all into a single platform. It makes what we do a lot more efficient and a lot quicker. And so our pitch to these media companies is Right, you can go do this yourself, or even to the brands. You can do all of this yourself. You can buy three different products. You can get twenty engineers. You can try and integrate it. You can lose eighteen months, or we can come to you with a single turnkey and integrated solution. So, we've kind of built a unique solution uh, that kind of crosses two different, generally product verticals, and by mm -hmm. bringing them together, that's uh, it's a more efficient and effective way for both these brands and media companies to um, you know move into the space. Okay. And what talk talk to me about how you came up with this problem? Were you what's your background? Yeah, so fu funny story. My background is actually in finance by trading. So you know, 
Motor, some Fortune 300 companies, Motorola, uh, General Dynamics, first American title. Um, and then my last role was actually over at LifeLock, the uh, founder of identity theft protection. We, I helped kind of build an industry there, not only a company, but an industry there. And I ran the finance organization through uh, our IPO. I became chief of staff, ran our operations. And then uh, one day I popped in, was requested to help out with the project and marketing. And uh, unfortunately, our CMO moved on. And I looked around one day and I was CMO of a, you know, a billion dollar plus company with no marketing experience. So <laughs> the company's still in business. So we'll call that at least a win or a push. But the, the reason that's salient to this is I knew nothing about marketing, right? I would, I, I would like to think I knew the company. I was good at working with people, but I really had no experience in marketing at all. And so Although it was a lot of difficulties and struggles, and I won't bore anyone with that today, it was this really unique position where I came in with no expectations of, quote unquote, this is how marketing works. And there were a couple of things that really stood out to me that, that didn't make any sense. The first was we were spending $125 million on TV and $125, on, $125 million on digital marketing, and neither one of those groups spoke to each other and were completely separate and disconnected. So my first question was, you know, why is half, you know, 50% in one, sorry, one half and the other half of our marketing department completely disconnected? So that was the first thing. Um, and the second thing, George, is relative to your question before is you asked me, what's my persona for our business? At LifeLock, we had nine different personas. Like most people, we had avatars, we had pictures, we gave them names. But it didn't matter which one of those nine avatars or personas you were. When you came to our website, they all got the exact same experience. And that never really made sense to me. If we're spending all of this time on avatar development, understanding our customer, what language resonates, what's the problem we're solving, and then we don't use that when at the most critical stage of the customer journey, when they're on our website ready to buy, there was just, it never really made sense to me. And so that was kind of the initial kind of inkling of Persosa for me. And then in terms of starting the company, it was actually really serendipitous. Fortunately, there's probably no lessons for your listeners in this um, because it wasn't thoughtful and it wasn't planned. But I was helping run the marketing for a company called Spiritual Gangster. It's a yoga clothing uh, company that's been around a decade. 96% female audience. They were looking to expand into menswear. I said, listen, there's no way you can take all of this male traffic, drive it to imagery of females doing yoga on the beach in Bali. You might as well pour your money down the drain. So I went out that week and I said, listen, there's got to be a platform that can dynamically change the content on your website for each and every visitor. This was four years ago. At the time, you know, there was Adobe, there was Dynamic Yield. You know, these are enterprise grade platforms where you're paying $200,000, $500,000, 10 engineers in a, honestly, a year plus implementation cycle. It was, there was really nothing that was practical for a small or medium sized business. Out of the blue, someone I'd met twice before over you know, a year, year and a half earlier, called me, happens to be my co-founder now. He says, Greg, you know, I know I met you once or twice. You're, I know you're in marketing. I want to get your thoughts on something. So we grabbed lunch that week. First things out of his mouth were, I've built this platform that dynamically changes the content for each and every user. And I was, you know, it was one of those moments I'm looking around like, is, is this a hidden camera? Is this, is this a joke? Yeah. And so I literally stopped him. I said, listen, I don't know if this is why you reached out to me. I've been looking for this solution all week. I have a customer. I know it doesn't exist. If you're interested, I'll quit everything I'm doing and going all in because I just see the opportunity and 
I'm like, because you've done you a bunch can... of you've done a bunch of research at this point, looking and saying Adobe, you know, Adobe has an option, but it's a year to implement. So there's nothing, eh? Nothing like this. There, it, there was nothing like that at the time. Now, obviously, the market's filling up a little bit, but at the time, there was nothing. I was looking for this. I'd done the research. I had a customer, and then. Yeah, you know, serendipitously, magically, you know, whatever destiny, whatever you want to say, this guy shows up that I've met once with the product already built. So I thought that was a sign that maybe I should uh, listen listen to the universe and and take a run at this. And you know, here we are, you know, three and a half, four years later. Okay, so tell me why your co-founder built this software. What was the story behind why what he saw in the problem and how he came mm -hmm. up with it and, and, and sort of built it sounds like he, he maybe sort of did this as a side project and built it on his own. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. He's 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 definitely the brains of the operation. So quick background about him. Uh former NSA top secret employee. He was a technical product lead over an American Express. And then he was also a analytics and data consultant for many years, including working with the original Google Analytics and Urchin software team back in the day. So very deep experience in data, user tracking. Um, and then most recently, he was working for a small startup. They had, think of it, they had a, their product was actually really cool. It was, think of it as a business in a box. You want to start a business, but you have to get an EIN. You have to open a bank account. You have to do all of these things, start a company. And they had a kind of a business in a box company. Come to them. They'll handle all the paperwork, all the logos, all the website, everything in a turnkey solution. Um, the problem was, or the opportunity, was that how they discussed and sold their product, even though it was a single product, talking to someone who wanted to start a photography business was very different than talking to someone who was a lawyer who just left a large firm and wanted to go out on their solo practice. And so they had to, in the at the time, they were looking to stand up 50 to 100 different landing pages. Uh, as a small team, that really wasn't manageable in terms of just standing them up, let alone maintaining them. And so my business partners first kind of hacked together you know, version zero of our platform was in this use case saying, okay, how do I create one landing page or one experience on our core website and just have this logic engine change the content if it's a lawyer versus a flower shop owner versus a photographer versus a so on and so forth. And so he had a real use case, kind of hacked together a solution for them. And then as he moved on, you know, he realized that what he'd built is that kind of MVP could be actually a full platform and a full product. And that was really when we connected. So I'm, I'm having a little trouble understanding how do you, how does the software detect what the um, content the user wants to see. Yeah, right now we have, we're a really open platform, so there are lots of different signals that we can take in. But for, let me give you a couple of examples. So, uh, in a way, that sounds like some kind of a privacy uh, issue. I mean, and how do you get around that? Because I know that you're obviously well versed in all the privacy laws and everything. But talk me through this because I'm just having uh, some difficulty understanding how that how you would be able to do this. Yeah, so I'm gonna. Let me step back from that question really quick. You know, when people mention you know, personalization, generally in the market, there are kind of two misconceptions. On the low end, oh, I'm already doing personalization, but it's a merge tag on an email where you're inserting their name, or I'm doing a pop-up on my website to capture an email. And so it's like, well, personalization is not really worth my time. It's not that powerful and not that effective. And then on the other extreme of that is to your question, George, is, 
personalization, you need to know my address and my blood type and you know what I wore to bed last night, that's really creepy and scary. Somewhere between those two extremes is something where we can deliver personalized experiences that a consumer wants and delivers value while still protecting their privacy. So back to your specific question, kind of in that middle of those two extremes, what we do is we call it anonymized personalization. That sounds like an oxymoron. But I don't have to know that you're George and that you live at 1234 Main Street and that your social security is, you know, 12345678. All I need to know to give you an experience that feels personalized and that engages you is what content drove you to the website. So, for example, if you're going to a sporting goods store and you click on an ad for a pair of running shoes, if you go to that sporting goods store today, they're probably giving you a baseball experience because it's the middle of baseball playoffs. But if you click on an ad for a pair of running shoes, when you go to DickSportingGoods.com, you want to see a beautiful hero image of someone running. You want to see a testimonial from someone who lives in the same city and state as you about their great experience with Dick's Sporting Goods, specifically purchasing running shoes. And you want to see links to articles about how to select the best pair of running shoes for you. At the exact same time, I'm coming in, I'm originally from New Zealand, so maybe I see an ad for a pair of uh, a rugby ball. So when I go to Dick's Sporting Goods, again, instead of a baseball experience, which is their default experience given baseball playoffs, I want to see a rugby experience with rugby players, rugby products, and rugby articles. And so they don't now, to your question, they don't, I don't have to know who you are specifically. I just have to listen to the signals about what drove you to that website and then continue that content and continue that conversation on site, you know, relative to the offsite articles, the Google search, the Facebook ad, whatever that is. So that's one way we could do it. Another way we could do it is, you know, geolocation, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm going to a, if I'm going to a mortgage company, quickenloans.com, and they're showing me a house with a cactus in front of it because I live in Phoenix, Arizona. Oh, Phoenix, oh, I see it. This is clearly a house in Arizona. They must know my market. I feel a lot more comfortable doing business with, business with them right away versus someone comes into Quicken Loans at that same time from Georgia. Let's show them a house that fits that type of de uh, you know, geographic area. It just makes them feel a lot more familiar. So I hope that answers your question. That you it does. Deliver it what, what it does, and it doesn't. It sounds to me like it works like retargeting a bit. So is it that they've been pixeled or something? Like it's um, and and the and they come and you sort of have some kind of a history from from like from your ad or something like that from their ad. Yeah, there are, yeah, there are a couple of things there. One, uh, usually when you click on an ad, if you look when you go to a website, when you click on an ad, it's you know www dot you know abc dot com, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then there's all all that gobbledygook, all that stuff kind of after the after the dot com. There's a lot of information, either UTM or query parameters that when you click on an ad, they can share that directly with the website. Okay, so it's coming from Help. the UTM parameters yeah, essentially it can then. Come from the, that's okay. one way from the UTM it can come okay. from the UTM parameters. So back to that example, if your UTM campaign is running, let's give you a running experience. Um, if it's football, we'll give you a football okay, experience. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. So we can use the UTM parameter uh, we have geolocation built into the platform. Uh, and then on site, we can track user behavior on site so that maybe not in that first session, but when you come back the next time, we know what you did that previous session so that you get an evolving experience that is more okay. tailored uh, to you as a consumer. Okay, so essentially there's three ways that you do it. You do it through UTM, 
you do it through geolocation, mm -hmm. and then you do it by collecting information the first. So if they're a new user, they don't get uh, a unique personalized experience because they there's no way for you to know that information. But the second time, and maybe they get retargeted, and so that's why they're coming back. And when they come back, it's more personalized. Is that correct? Yes, I would say um, if they come directly to the site, then yes, we'll probably do a second time experience. But if they're coming in from a specific ad with a UTM parameter, we can do personalization on that okay, first touch. Right, right. But if it was like direct, you know, word of mouth or something, and there was, yeah, the, yeah okay. Maybe, maybe, maybe geolocation on that first one if it's direct. But okay. It depends on depends on the customer. Okay. That's very interesting. So your co-founder determined all of this by himself. What made him think that this was a big problem himself? Honestly, I don't think he had done kind of the market research. Uh, he, he's a product guy. He loves building things. You know, as you go through tech, right, there are machine learning and AI and you know, the big buzzwords now. But four or five years ago when he was working on this, the big buzzwords were real-time data. And you know, as a as a data guy himself, it was always frustrating to him. What he said is, you know, real time data is just eye candy because if you don't use that real time data in real time, it doesn't really matter. And so he actually backed into the platform one through this use case. But because of the fact that he uh, he was so frustrated with all of this, you know, marketing, pardon my French, BS about real time data that he said, okay. What real-time data is there that I can use and actually unlock value against it in real time? And so he hadn't, honestly, he hadn't done the market research. He just thought this was kind of a cool side project. Um, he started to build it out, um, and it just happened to kind of cross over relative to that use case that he had for that other startup at that point in time. And so he was he's very much a... Uh, phenomenal developer and this was kind of a side fun side sounds like he sounds like a dream co-founder so <laughs> sounds like you kind of just landed this landed in your lap at the right time right place and right time talk to me about the rollout so did he ha he didn't even have any customers at this time i imagine right no it was a night and weekend project for him and i think i was the first or second person that he'd called to share it with and it just happened that i had that first customer uh, spiritual gangster the yoga clothing company and okay. so we were able to we were able to walk it into them as our first use case okay and how rough was the con was it just like a proof of concept or was it like fully up working i mean yeah the, it was the, fully work the mvp yeah yeah the full the, the mvp was fully working um what i would say is perhaps it wasn't polished for public consumption from a ui ux perspective but the ability to actually deliver personalized experiences was was working mm -hmm. and uh and, and that's all the client really cared about anyway right correct yeah. because we were at that point in time it wasn't a self-service platform so we were doing kind of all of the back-end management ourselves so as long as it worked and delivered the business results clients were happy Okay, great. And and what were you able to charge them? This spiritual gangster. What was what were they prepared to pay, and what what were you able to charge them that first time? If I recall correctly, I think we were charging them about five hundred dollars a month. It's a lot less than we charge today, but you know, there, there's value in having your first your first proof point, right? Honestly, yeah. I probably would have given it. I would have given it them to away for free at that point in time, to be honest. But we were actually able to drive some really strong results for them. Like I said, they were female-focused, 96% female audience and customers. They were wanting to grow their male business. So two things would have happened. Either they could have taken all of that male traffic and male audience, driven it to a female experience, and none of it would have converted, or not very much. Or conversely, what they would have started, other companies would have started to do is put more male 
imagery products in their female experience, and they would have actually tanked their core business. And so what we're able to do is show the females a female experience, the males a male experience, and actually there was a third group, the parents a kids-focused product experience. And by doing that, we were able to get the male and uh, parent segments a 50, sorry, a 49% lift in conversion relative to sending them to the, the default website. So that was a really big kind of success for them and a, and a good feather in our, our hat to then use that to hopefully open you know, open some more doors and use that as a case study. Okay, great. And so how did that go with it? So uh, just to be clear, I guess that the male would click on a, a, some ad and that would be like male inside the UTM and, that, and that's how they were doing it. Okay, makes makes total sense. So the how did it go for your next customers? T talk to me about through the sort of um, product market fit because you mentioned before the show that you you found product market fit, but then you sort of pivoted away from me. So talk me through that sort of initial phase of, of going, say, from zero to 20,000 on the product. Yeah, one one of the things we didn't do well, lessons learned, is we didn't have a repeatable sales process. A lot of what we'd, out of the gate, our first customers were relationship-driven. Probably like a lot of companies, right? Who do, who do I know? Who can I call? Who can I get excited about this? Someone that trusts me already. And so we went from companies like Spiritual Gangster, like I, like I said, I was already consulting with them. One of my former bosses from LifeLock was over at WAG Walking, uh, Uber for Dog Walking. Uh, we walked in there into WAG, and what we're able to do with them is they they were in nine major markets across the U.S., and we were able to use localization to deliver localized experiences for each one of their key markets. So for example, if you came in from San Francisco, instead of seeing a generic image on their home site of someone walking a dog out of a front door, we updated the imagery to be show someone walking a dog in Golden Gate Park with the bridge in yeah, the background. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, that makes we sense. Changed, we changed the text to say San Francisco's most trusted dog walking service, and then we localized the testimonials to be from other real customers who lived in San Francisco. And okay. so by repeating that concept across each one of their markets, within four days of signing with us, we had them up and running and we got them a 35% reduction in bounce rate, 170% increase in time on site. And over the first month of that test, we saved them over 500,000 customers that who normally would have come to their site and immediately bounced that actually stayed to learn about their brand. And so we kind of went from spiritual gangster to wag. I'm trying to think who our next couple of customers are. We were, we got in with uh, Taser, the stun gun manufacturer. We're doing some, we're doing some really interesting things there, where their audiences were actually so different that if they crossed into each other, they would have uh, probably never spoken to one one another. Uh, on one hand, you had passionate gun owners who wanted to carry a Taser in all the places they weren't allowed to carry a gun, and on the other side, they wanted to talk to. Um, parents who were, let's just say, non-supportive of guns, but wanted something to protect their family, right? If you tried to talk yeah. to both of them at the same time, I could see that would group. be very <laughs> difficult. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You basically got opposite ends of the spectrum there, so you can't really write copy or blog posts or. But now, now you're saying that they can, so they could, so Taser could essentially write copy and and even keep blogs and keep them all together. And essentially, the, would the blogs be, be um, segmented as well, even? Could it get down to that level? Or is it just essentially um, landing pages? No. So short answer is, uh, 
yes, we could. We didn't do that specifically for Taser. We just gave them a couple of home homepage and multi-page experiences. But yes, we can change any any and all content through and throughout the entire website. So we're not even usually we don't actually change landing pages. We're actually changing their their actual homepage, their www.abc.com site. Okay. Um, so we have the ability to kind of okay. influence or change any and all content. Okay, that makes sense. So really, it sounds like you're going for big enterprise clients that would have, you know, where you're moving the needle, they need to be what, like, like 2 million page views a month, sort of? Or can you can you can it go down? Yeah, great question. You know, those would just happen to be some relationships that we had. And we were fortunate that they were relatively well known brands, which really helped us grow the business. Um, but no, we have much smaller clients, you know, smaller from a revenue side. But we also have a number of B2B clients that have five, ten thousand visitors a month, but maybe their individual sale is, you know, a lot more than selling a t-shirt or a pair of yoga pants, right? So yes, from an ROI perspective, it has to be positive, but we do do deal with a number of kind of smaller businesses from both a kind of revenue and uh, volume perspective. Okay, great. So walk me through you mentioned the you pivoting away. What was the problem that you experienced uh, um, and, and why you made the pivot? Yeah, it wasn't really a, a problem. It was more the fact that we saw a much larger opportunity. So from a technology perspective, you know, we've mentioned that we do web personalization. And that's where we started. Um, my co-founder Kirk and I looked ahead and said, well, web personalization is interesting. But when you look at the market, consumers interact with brands in multiple places. Right, whether it's your mobile app, whether it's on streaming television ads, whether it's on your actual website, where it's on a wearable, whatever the case is. And so uh, Kirk actually went back and abstracted the platform. And instead of being just web personalization, we turned it into a data tracking and personalization API. And what that allows us to do is really take signals in from, process those signals, and then push pro uh, personalized content back out really to any digital channel. And where we believe the opportunity was around this was uh, connecting television and digital marketing, going back to one of the problems that I identified when I was CMO of LifeLock. And so the, the use case here is you're watching television, you see an ad for an F-150 Ford truck. In the moment, like 97% of Americans, you're watching TV with a phone in your hand. You go to Ford.com and today... Maybe you get a Ford Fusion, maybe you get a minivan experience, but it's not an experience on Ford.com that's directly tied to the ad that you just saw that drove you there. And so, you know, with Pesosa and the partnerships with these large media companies we're talking to, if you see an ad for a Ford F-150 and in the moment, or maybe an hour later or a day later, go to Ford.com, we're going to dynamically merchandise their site to give you a personalized experience around the Ford 150, because that's what most likely drove you to that website in the first place. Yeah. Wow, that's that's impressive technology. Now, how did Kirk figure that out? Is that sounds like it's it's so it's coming through the TV. How does he mm -hmm. how does it how does he know like from the domain where it came from and Yeah, so great question. We don't automatically know and we're not kind of listening in kind of through your phone. What we're doing and this is a reason we're going and engaging and talking to these large media companies is they already know what you're watching, right? They're serving that content up to you. And through our partnerships with these media companies, 
you know, when they're sharing that data with us, we're then using that data to deliver a more personalized and targeted experience. So it would be like consumer. a geo geolocation. They would know that if you were in New York at this time that that they ran that ad, that they said, okay, we, we ran a New York ad for F-150, and so that's where they're getting the – so you're using your geolocation services. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, we we could we can do it by your login, kind of at a truly one-to-one -one level. We could do it at a cohort base, so it's kind of abstracted and private. But it could be by time, geolocation, market, uh, a lot of different ways that we can uh, connect those experiences for the consumer. Okay, and so at, at first you started with these sort of web companies. Now you're exclusively going for the these large publishers. Correct. The reason is to your question, why did we pivot? We're we're a small company right now. We're still yeah. we're four people. We're four people. Yeah. Um, and so we can only do so much in terms of level of effort and focus. And so one on the web personalization side, they're definitely not crowded, right? But there are a few other companies coming in. It's a, a large opportunity, but we believe connecting TV and digital is one, a larger opportunity. Two, we have to stay focused as a small company. Um, and then three you know, as a company that's growing, we were very fortunate to bring on some uh, some advisors with deep experience in TV and media. So people like the former CMO of MGM Studios, the former CEO of NBC, Fox and CBS, the former CRO of Univision. And so just kind of happened to cross over that we got some great advisors with deep experience in TV. Two, we believe it's a larger opportunity. Um, three, we can only focus one area. And then the fourth thing is just the way we've built our platform. We believe that we have a technology, kind of a technological advantage, you know, within the connecting TV to, to web, just because of the way we've built our, our technology right. out. So what does that do to the size of your customer? I understand that they're large customers, but to me, it sounds like there would be a lot less of them, right? There's a lot more web companies out there. But there's not as much of these big publishing uh, houses. Uh, what does that do to your market? It shrinks it dramatically. So from a, I would say it's interesting. It shrinks it from a target perspective, right? We're, we're kind of swinging for triples and grand slam and home runs, maybe yeah. more than singles. But let's just say we pick up one large TV publisher. They already have relationships with thousands of advertisers. So the example there is, you know, this is all hypothetical, right? I'm just using this as a brand example. We partner with NBC. Mm -hmm. NBC already has a relationship with Ford. Ford, you're already spending half a billion dollars on advertising with us. We have this really great solution that will make that advertising perform 25, 50% better. And here's what it can do for you. And so it's a smaller, it's a smaller initial conversation, but the ability to, for us to scale through them as a distribution partner, I mean, one any one of these media partners would probably replace two two and a half years of growth adding other customers one by one so at the end of the day we're still servicing the end businesses it's just whether we go directly one-to-one -one or we can partner with these media companies to get a larger distribution play so in that case of nbc they're not they're just a customer but then they can give you referrals to these other smaller say local these local media stations they could all also become customers or does nbc still become i mean to, to kind of walk me through the chain like how that because to me it sounds like you you're almost like a like a services operation where you get it you can get like 10 huge customers that are paying you a million each or something but it sounds, it, am, am I misunderstanding the model? Is there a way for you to sort of still be able to get two to 3,000 users? 
Yeah, it, candidly, those are the conversations we're currently in. So there are a couple of different models, right? I think there's one, uh, we're still SaaS or technology as a service, mm-hmm. and NBC, NBC in that example is licensing us, and or we're a partner with NBC, and we're a value add where they introduce us and share us with their customers. And the reason they would want to do that is if you're NBC and you're selling competitively against ABC or Hulu or some of these other channels, like, hey... Great, you can buy media anywhere, but one, we believe our shows are more powerful and we have better audiences. Mm-hmm. And two, when you buy that media through us, we also have this Pesosa service that can extend all of your commercials to matching, amplifying, and converting on-site experiences. And so the those are the conversations we're in. It's the right question, George. We're trying to, <laughs> candidly, uh, we're working through that and figuring it out, whether it's a technology as a service through NBC or it's a partnership relationship where this, we're kind of a value-add uh, to their existing customers that we have a direct relationship and we could, they kind of introduce us on their behalf. Okay. Um, have there been any any big failures along the way that 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 um, you have learned from and maybe our customers can or our listeners can uh, learn from some of the big failures? Um, so things that you wish you didn't do or how did you come over overcome some of the uh, big issues that came up? How how much time do we have? Um, well, do uh, me, give me the big them. one. Give me the biggest one. I would say there. I think there are probably two lessons uh, learnt that immediately come to mind. The first one is being a finance guy. Historically, I'm a little bit more conservative, and I didn't spend aggressively in customer acquisition and learning about our customer and getting product market fit. And what I mean by that is, you know, I was worried about do we spend $5,000 this month on marketing or do we spend $7,000 on marketing this month? When the real question is, every month that it w- I was slowly learning, I had another $50,000 of burn rate across the best the rest of the business that was hurting us. So if I were to do it all again, I would have spent ten dollars or $15,000 a month in marketing, even though it would have shortened my life, you know, my capital available or my balance sheet, it would have burned it up a lot quicker. Um, I would have been a lot more efficient. And so I was focused on worried about two or $3,000 in marketing and customer acquisition and missing the big picture on, hey, we're burning 50 grand a month. How do we accelerate this? Um, seems obvious <laughs> in retrospect, but when you're in the middle of it and kind of watching your cash as an early startup, that was a big lesson. The other big one was we're a technology company. We have great technology and we thought we were selling technology. That was my mistake. We need to be selling business outcomes and results. And where that came into play is we have new technology that for the general market is this is the first time they've seen it. So what we were doing initially is we were going saying, we've got this great platform. Here it is. We've trained you. You go use it. But there's no one at any of our customers who has the title director of personalization. There's no one who'd actually done this before. This was like showing up to someone riding a horse tossing them the keys to a car and then wondering why they drove that car into a wall, right? That was on us. We weren't spending the time to carry and hold our customers' hands and educate them all the way through through the sale, through actually delivering the actual business results that they needed and that we had promised. And so where that, where that really changed our business, at least for today, honestly, five years from now, I think personalization will be a lot more common. We can be a true technology company, but right now we've had to bundle services into what we're doing. So not only do we sell you the platform, but perhaps even more importantly, we help you with the strategy. We help you with your first personalization experience creation, and we help them with the first few cycles of optimization to truly make sure that they're going to be 
you know, they're going to be effective, that we're going to drive real business results to make sure that we are, we can't be successful as a business unless our clients are successful as a business. Okay. It sounds like a very interesting product to try and price. Can you walk me through your pricing and how you came up with it and maybe how it's evolved as the product has evolved? Yeah, where we where we start and where we are at today, it may change in the future, is very much around number of visitors to your website. It's kind of a proxy for usage and value, right? To your question earlier, George, do we only support people with two million customers? It's kind of a range. So if you have, you know, if you have five thousand visitors a month, we're going to charge you X, and if you have five million visitors a month, we're going to charge you Y. So it's not the most it's not the most perfect pricing model, but it seems to work so far. It's a it's a proxy for value. It's that sort we're of like a hosting, like a, a hosting pricing model, like like say like Kinster or something that prices that way. Correct. Like I say, it's kind of a it's a, it's a two two things. One, it's a proxy for value that we're unlocking mm-hmm. because we don't no one really exactly knows that until we're kind of in market with you. Mm-hmm. And then two, it's also something that they know. People can go into Google Analytics and look at their website visitors. You know, we were looking at pricing for a while on number of ex- personalized experiences, but that's theoretical. People don't understand that because it's a new concept that we're presenting to them. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to anchor our pricing in something that they was quantifiable. They could understand and they could track so that we weren't bringing kind of you know more confusion into the sales process mm-hmm. so when you're on your when you're on your pitch now to prospective clients like the demo what's the sort of what is the what's the one there's probably one thing in there one one line or one problem that you're really solving that really that really gets their attention now when you're doing it so like okay if you if you sign up for us you know to me, like, we'll give you a personalized experience, you know, that's sort of, you know, fuzzy. I don't even know what that means. But if, if you if you tell them, like, we do, you know, we get 40% more in conversions, that sort of thing, like, what's the one thing? Or, do you, or does it change per, per customer type that you have a call with? Yeah. You know, the specifics always change, right? We're a personalization company. We need to be personalized in, in how we present our own product. Uh, but they're really kind of two things. One... We share our case studies, right? We're not talking one or two percent increases. We're talking tens or if not hundreds of percent. So one, it's here's the really big opportunity and we've proven it with these real brands that you're familiar with. And then to de-risk it on the other side of that is like at the lowest case, if we stand up 10 of these personalized experiences, that's only one additional sale per day per experience. And that seems such a low lift that there's almost no risk to trying us. So it's, hey, on the downside, we've almost removed all the risk off the table. But if things go really well, look at the types of results we can deliver for your business. So we've really tried to address it from both being one aspirational in terms of the value and excitement that we can drive, but also at the same time, from a practical perspective, try to de-risk that investment for them as well. Okay, great. So, so Greg, we're getting close to the end of the time that we agreed to speak. Um, I want to thank you for your time. Is there anything that you can leave our customers with? Maybe uh, speaking to, uh, I think it's quite an interesting evolution that that you've, um, you know, navigated your way to to where you are now. This is certainly not something that I've heard of. You know, saying you know, going to broadcast, you know, going to these big publishing houses, like how you let the product naturally evolve to find where you're at. Do you have some guidance there, sort of navigating all these complicated issues that you've overcome? Oh, you know, I I think one thing I would say is trust your gut. 
And I know that's a very non-technical answer, but the whole thing about being an entrepreneur is you need to have 100% confidence in something you've probably never done before, or maybe something no one else has ever done before because it's a new product or technology. And so there's a reason you're doing this. I would say, trust your gut. And at the same time, talk to your customers. I think as technologists, Mm -hmm. right, we're all about data and technology and I, I talked to people, when was the last time you spoke to your customer? They're like, well, we do a customer survey or a panel. And I said, no, when was the last time you picked up the phone and spoke to your customer? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, it's a bit of a balance between direct communication with your customers, understand who they are, what they want, how they're using your product, and then balance that with your vision. And then somewhere between you know, the overlap of those two is something really great. Okay, that sounds like wise advice. Um, and and obviously, we'll have Persosa in the show notes. How do, how can people re- reach out to you if they've found something particularly interesting and they want to follow up with you? Hey, I'm I'm a bit old fashioned. Just reach out directly to me. I'm not going to send you to LinkedIn. Just go to Greg G R E G at Persosa P E R S O S A dot com. Always happy to connect and see what I can do to help other entrepreneurs and other business owners. And then, you know, two of the areas that we really focus on and help our customers, one, personalization, um, but also data tracking and data ownership, which these days is such a hot topic with some of the changes around Google and Apple with privacy and data tracking. So we've actually stood up a page, persosa.com slash big break for your customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, not going to try and sell them anything, but we've put together what we believe are some really good resources for people Great. who want to learn more about personalization and uh, data ownership. For sure. We'll put that in the show notes too. appreciate you doing that. Thank you so much for your time, Greg. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. Likewise. Thanks for listening to the Big Break Software Podcast with your host, Jordy Wardman. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out on the web. Keep listening and your software Big Break could be right around the corner. <music>